Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. We have a special guest on the podcast today, Colin Miller. Colin is calling in. But I'm to talk about <laughs> to talk about a movie that uh, he wants to talk about, Fracture. Uh, if you remember, Colin was the fella who sent in the audio clip that we talked about ghosting on, and so uh, Colin is, is is turning out to be quite the creative contributor down there in Texas to Psychology in Seattle, our special Texas correspondent, mm-hmm. if you will, <laughs> and. Howdy. Colin uh, wanted to talk about Fracture, so let's get into it. What do you say, guys? Let's do it. I'm ready. This is the Psychology and Sada Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I design marble mazes. Who are you, Colin? I'm Colin, and I work on elaborate uh, fixtures that carry balls. Wait a oh. minute. Are you in the same field as I am? That's impressive. I thought there was only a few of us. It's a small world. Yeah. So, in Colin. Fact, I designed some of them for that ride in Disney. <laughs> so, Colin, uh, you wanted to lead this conversation, so lead away. Okay. Well, the main reason I, and by the way, if anybody is listening and wants to watch the movie, it is right now, I don't know for how long, available on Netflix. Um, just type in Fracture. You'll, you'll know. I think Rosamund Pike is the poster for it um she's the one from gone girl and um i wanted to talk about this film because i think it's overlooked i've i enjoyed it when i saw it in the the theater excuse me and nobody really talks about it and i'm a huge anthony hopkins fan and i think this is one of my favorite performances of his even though that's quite a quite a catalog and um i actually mostly wanted to um, raise the question of his attention the characters attention to meticulous detail and I, I was wondering if you Kirk and you Umberto had any thoughts on where that comes from what kind of person is that meticulous and do you think it was depicted well by the screenwriters director and Anthony Hopkins yeah it sounds uh, awesome fascinating uh, I will say I'm shocked that you mentioned that the the image on the Netflix thing is from Rosamund Pike, since she's like a side character, and you have Ryan Gosling and Anthony, and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. That's shocking. Um, I had not heard of this movie. I mean, we live in a sexist society. We all have we to do. recognize that <laughs> women, <laughs> women are privileged. Right. Uh, but actually, they're probably doing it for you know. It's like, well, let's put a pretty girl up there and see if we can. Oh God, dig that hole even further. But uh, I had not heard of this movie. I had, may, I mean, maybe at the time, but it certainly had not made an impression. I don't think I ever even saw a preview for it. So when you, when I heard from Kirk that we should watch it, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I love Anthony Hopkins. Um, so I, I watched it. Uh, I enjoyed it. I have some, some complaints about it. Uh, and I have some things that I liked about it. Uh, in general, the question about was, you know, what about the depiction of someone that's really focused on attention to detail? Um, that I do think there is this trope in entertainment of superhuman humans that can be so ultra-focused and so sort of flawless in their execution. We see it all over the place. Uh, we've many times talked about Sherlock Holmes and... Uh, what's his name, Dr. Gregory House. 
But it happens in in a lot of other contexts, right? You'll have the mine hunter, mine hunter, right? You'll have the war movie, and it's like, or action movie, and it's like, well, they're bringing in Joshua. <gasps> Not Joshua the sniper. Yeah, he's never missed one target in his life. You know, those kind of things. Um, and it's, it's sort of a, a trope for humans, right? We like to think there are some of us or s- some very few of us that are so perfect. You know, the perfect martial artist, all these things. Yeah, I don't know if this is a term, but you could almost call it competence porn. Yeah, I love it. If it's not a term, it should be a term. You know, term this, porn. <laughs> we get this sort of we get off on watching people that are just like ultra competent. Yeah, in this like uh, in inhuman way, right? And so they they set him up right from the beginning of the movie. They're like, uh, we you know, I, I was having a little trouble understanding what is it that he does, but they at the least show us like, oh yeah, this dude is so good at what he does that while he's setting up some little marble craziness. He walks by and says, points to a diagram and says, that's the flaw, and walks off and rides a super fast conver- uh, convertible sports car. I, th- I think it's it just, was a, a plane crash. Yeah, he was, he was uh, determining what had caused the... The crash yeah. of an airliner yeah. or something. And, he, and I, I get the sense that he was a, a high-end consultant or something like that. Yeah. But anyways... Do uh, they ever specifically yeah. say what his job is? I know that he owns Crawford Aeronautics, but I mean, does he... I mean, was he the creator of those planes? Maybe. Uh, yeah, they never explained it. It was very, very he's, briefly depicted. He's high-end, high IQ, perfect execution, <laughs> ridiculous attention to detail. Yeah, Colin, <laughs> what do you think of that, that character and that depiction? Well, I I actually started to empathize with the, the wife character. Um, I think she's a really good actress, and I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and start off with um, a triggering moment when uh, she gets shot, which isn't a spoiler Ooh. because yeah. it happens in the first 20 minutes well, of the movie. Uh, I feel like we should spoil the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, spoiler yeah. alert. If you haven't okay, seen it, spoilers. it's going to be spoiled. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with the film Matilda, but it, yeah. was, it, was, a, it was a childhood film of mine and she played Miss Honey. Oh! And I had this, yeah, I, I had this like, I don't know, she was such a breath of light in that film so i've always had this kind of vision of her whenever i see her again if she's on she was on mad men for a little while i still have her in my head as miss honey this like perfect woman i guess you could say um and so like to see her you know unceremoniously just shot in the Mm -hmm. face by anthony hopkins was chilling to say the least Um, that's a good point but, but i i found myself connecting with her because there's something about his gaze, and I know that this is also a great... I mean, he it's Anthony Hopkins. He has one of the best um, looks in hmm. movie history. I mean, he knows how to look at people on screen. He just knows how to do it. But his gaze was just so menacing. And what I, I started to think about while I was watching the rest of the movie is how it feels to be the receiver of that gaze and how hmm. horrible that must be. And And how she might have that i mean maybe that contributed to her having an affair which we also find out very early on that she's sleeping with a hostage negotiator and um so anyway i was i was thinking about um the kind of pressure that it puts on people who are you know who have to interact with characters um like anthony hopkins yeah, I, I will say, by the way, for all you listeners who don't mind spoilers but haven't actually seen it, the, the real brief uh, setup is that 
we see this uh, super high-functioning individual, Anthony Hopkins, and he's seemingly spying in on his wife, and she's having an affair with someone. Uh, and then he confronts her at their super awesome house and shoots her dead. And then the next thing that happens is the cops descend on him. He gets arrested by this uh, aggressive hostage negotiator who happens to be the same guy who had been sleeping with her. And now he's awaiting trial. And we meet our, our lawyer protagonist, who's uh, Ryan Gosling. And the whole thing is about Anthony Hopkins uh, trying to go through this trial uh, with the prosecutor being Ryan Gosling. Uh, and then the rest of it, we'll, we'll get to spoilers, but the rest of it is that all those dynamics, and that's that's what's going on. Well, and I, I think explaining that part is important, too, because some people like to listen to the podcast even if they haven't seen the movie, you know? Right. And basically, Ryan Gosling learns over time cause that Anthony Hopkins had meticulously planned this murder or this shooting so that he would get away with it. And he he was like the puppet master even building up to the crime right. so that even afterwards, even if he confessed, he would still get away with it because of all these different um, uh, games that he played to set up a scenario so that he would, he would get off, and he did get off. Well, and, and because of a distinct lack of meddling children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, what, what was your question, Colin, or wh- where were you going with this? I forget. Well, I was just wondering if either Oh yeah, of these- where like where have we been? Well, I wanted to ask you, Colin, have you been a target of an Anthony Hopkins sort of person? In a way. So, I'm going to be very clear that this person is not a psychopath. Um she's she's not crazy in any way. Um I don't even know how much I like the word crazy um because it's not super helpful, but um she's so I don't I don't know if you guys are into astrology. And a lot of it is 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 not necessarily substantiated by any real evidence, but I just enjoy it as for fun. And so she's a Virgo and she always attributes this to um, her attention to the way dishes are put up in an apartment, (laughs) just to, um, not that anybody listening to this would discover who this is, but um, in her apartment, she has a system where glass has to be in a certain place the jars that she reuses mm. for, you know, jams, jellies, marmalades, they have to be in a certain place. Anyway, it's, it, it's, it's such a system that at one point I put up her dishes um, just as a gesture of good faith. And, and she I shot you in the face? <laughs> and yes, I'm speaking from beyond the grave. Oh. Um, yeah, it, it I didn't put them up to her specifications and she detailed exactly how things were supposed to go. And it was a fascinating moment listening to her explain how I did it incorrectly because I would never have thought about that kind of stuff because I'm not maliciously putting her dishes up in the wrong place. Hmm. So, and that happened very recently. So it was, it actually happened after I had rewatched film for the podcast so yeah definitely but did she stare at you the way anthony hopkins stared at his wife no she didn't (laughs) okay she was just very very meticulous about the placement of everything yes it was this uh it it, well i i described it um as one does uh to to a friend after it happened and uh my friend was like are you 
are you kidding me? Like, wait, she said these actual things because it was just so specific. And it was this expectation that I would have understood. And that's, that's, I think where, um, I started, I started thinking about that line that he says to, I think his wife, just before he shoots her, he, he talks about his loneliness and he's like, well, you know, knowledge is pain. I'm used to that. And, 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 uh, she says, you know, those don't sound like feelings. And so I wonder if people that are very meticulous sometimes go through life feeling unheard or unseen by people because mm. we're not a part of their unique systems. What do you think, Berta? That's interesting. I guess, okay, so I can relate in some small ways. Uh, for example, I, you know, I, I am very uh, opinionated about certain likes and dislikes that I have. Um, and I have often felt like, you know, I have to just give up that emotion I feel because, uh, you know, I won't get enough people that agree with me or something like that. And it's not about dishes, but it's really about like the way I feel a movie should have gone or a story should have gone. And I, when I was younger, I I would get into long, like multi-hour long debates with people about these things. And I was fairly immovable and I was so frustrated. Why can't I get him to see this my way? And it was just about movies. It was just about, you know, like what I felt the plot meant or whatever it was. And, you know, you know me, I still argue vehemently for my positions, but I have over the years gotten to the point where I definitely have to tell myself, well, just let it go. It's fine. They're entitled to their opinion. You have your opinion. Kind of grin and bear it, right? Um, so I can sort of relate to that idea that, well, what what did you just do? Like, this is not how the dishes are supposed to be organized, you know? In her case, it's dishes. In my case, it's movie plots or whatever. Um, <laughs> what I can't relate to, of course, is then, you know, then staring them down and shooting them. Because <laughs> uh, that part's a little, a little more extreme. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of roads to this kind of behavior. Uh, one road is, or one one sort of style is... It's like, okay, everyone around me, I'm really sorry, but I'm extremely meticulous about where my dishes go in the kitchen, and I realize it's a problem, but I can't change that about myself, especially in the short term. So I'd, if everyone could sort of comply with that, um, you're going to make me a lot less stressed out. So that's what we call an ego dystonic uh, relationship with your obsession or compulsion, which is that you realize that it's a quality of yourself that isn't really you and you don't really agree with it, but you recognize that it's mm. a problem and you have to account for it. A lot of times anxiety is like that. You know, like when I had panic disorder, I knew that. And to this day, when I suffer from anxiety, it's ego dystonic in that mm. I, I know that it's not really me. It's something that's happening to me and I don't agree with the anxiety. You know, I'm, I, it's not a part of my personality. Okay. So that's one approach. Uh, another approach is where, um, you absolutely do believe that it's the, that there's a right and a wrong and and that there's a right way to put the dishes in the cupboard and there's mm -hmm. a wrong way. And um, you're very meticulous about that. And it, it, you're either anxious about it or you're just very controlling about it. And there's, those are two different places you can come from. One is, is like, I'm, I'm, I actually feel uncomfortable when the dishes aren't in the right place. Or I actually like controlling my world and other people. Mm. So there's, there's different approaches there. Um, and then there's a, maybe a third category where people 
uh, recognize or they they believe that there's a right and a wrong, and they also want to impose that on other people in a aggressive, hostile manner. Um, so you know, being meticulous doesn't mean that you're going to be hostile to other people. Right. Uh, so you have to have all those elements. You have to be uh, obsessive about how things look. You have to be perfectionistic, meticulous. You have to believe that there's a right and a wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't be like, well, this is just my opinion, or you have to believe, yeah, this is the right way, and you have to take that to a hostile place. And people like this either are so wrapped up in their anxiety that they are terrified of letting go of that control mm. and will get angry at other people for sort of threatening them and triggering them, or they are raised in such a way that um, this was either modeled for them or rewarded in some developmental way that makes them actually believe that it's they're entitled to uh, make other people feel uh, afraid or uncomfortable for wronging their system, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, another thing that comes to mind is, so the fact that Anthony Hopkins' character is ultra meticulous in everything um, isn't why he plans this elaborate, meticulous murder. But in movies, they often equate those. Right, right, right. Because, you know, you, you would think like, well, okay, so the guy was found out that he was being cheated on. Like lots of people sadly find that out and... It's super hurtful. And some of them do take violent measures, right? But mm-hmm. it's not just that. In fact, if anything, the more realistic thing would have been to portray how this is one of those times in his life where meticulous goes out the window because he's so upset and enraged that blah, blah. Instead, think about the the traits that must be present for him to coldly, calculatingly over what must have been a while – planned all the little variables out, all the little things that he was going to do and how it was going to play out, who was going to arrive when and blah, 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 to get away with the murder of these two people. Like, that's that's something else. And and I guess you could say the fact that he's so meticulous in general might help him in planning such a thing out, but it's not the other way around. <laughs> right. I think the movie also fetishized his control or and, or – or actually was making a point of fetishizing uh, control in general because, mm. you know, most of the interesting dialogue occurs between Anthony Hopkins and Ryan Gosling, and that's mm. because they're bantering. And not, you know, like at that scene on the table where he's talking, he's telling the story about being on an egg farm and finding the cracks in the shell. It's, it's all a ploy to uh, exert his control over uh Ryan Gosling. And to me, that was like his ultimate pleasure yeah. in, in the movie, more so than, you know, any kind of love for his late wife, um, yeah, totally. who he murdered. Uh, it was, it was the, uh, the appeal of control. And, and I don't know, I kind of, I feel like he was, you know, another sadist in, but, and when I say that, I don't mean sadist in a like fantasy way. I mean, like, a real sadist who legitimately enjoys people in pain. Yeah. It's almost as if he was going to, at some point, do something horrific, and here was presented with, oh, I might as well do it about these two because they sort of pissed me off. Well, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, Another way, a slight askance from that, is that deep down, like any other human being, he was deeply hurt and afraid of losing his wife, 
when he, however he did, discover that his wife was having an affair. And he uh, uh, coped with that in a way that he probably habitually coped with it by uh, being logical and meticulous about a solution. You know, what's the solution? Well, I, I have this impulse to get back at them, which is normal. Uh, On a small level, it's normal to like yell at someone or, you know, make the other person feel bad out them somehow. And uh, given that he's also a psychopath and doesn't actually, actually care about other human beings. I mean, he's a, he's a terrible human being, Anthony Hopkins character, which, which made me wonder like, why did this nice woman marry this guy to begin with? Right. Because, (laughs) because that, that first interaction where he's just so, uh, I don't know. Like he, he's like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And this warm woman is like trying to have a conversation with him and he's just being a total jerk, but, I get, but also like uh, demonically jerky. I mean, I got the sense he was older, very wealthy. He probably met her when she was younger and, you know, sadly she was looking for someone who had money and then he was fine with having a trophy wife or whatever well i was wondering if you found any because i I wrote down this line of dialogue and there's there was a lot of good stuff i mean it was in five minutes not even five minutes when anthony hopkins and imbeth davids were talking just before he murders her that was honestly one of my favorite scenes in the movie um but when he said you know sometimes i'm at work and i'll start thinking about you and i'll get overwhelmed it's a crushing geophysical force Mm. and I was wondering if, if, if either of you had talked to anybody that maybe at one point fell for somebody with this really intense attraction to them and could, could articulate it in a very strong way. And then over time, it became a little uncomfortable and then extremely uncomfortable um, as a kind of like manipulation. So I, I don't know, did either of you um, maybe get that? Maybe that's why she ended up with him. She ended up with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, I could see that. Right. So people like so we we don't get the benefit of seeing their relationship prior to nice. him being upset. So it's quite possible that he was a sort of person with schemas around abandonment and had a deep, deep need for connection with other people and maybe got jealous a lot uh, in this meticulous manner. And she might have liked that at first because it made her feel needed. Um, A a sort of a classic uh, similar analogy is that uh, for people who suffer from what we call borderline or, you know, they've been relationally traumatized, abandoned growing up, and their coping mechanism is to chase other people quite a bit and to make their needs known a lot and to um, react strongly when they feel rejected. This can actually... Uh, uh, bridge the gap to some people. A sort of a classic example is you take someone, you take two people who were relationally traumatized growing up, uh, you know, mistreated. Um, one person develops the coping mechanism of chasing, and the other person develops the mechanism of avoiding and running away and, you know, escaping uh, relationships. But both of them desperately want closeness. And the avoidant person uh, grows up feeling lonely. They, they never feel like they're close to anyone. But then all of a sudden they meet someone who chases them all the time, who alerts mm. them. Like, how come you didn't call me? I need you. I love you. Uh, please call me more often. Uh, I want to hang out all the time. And I know that 
you know, you keep saying you don't want to hang out as, as much. And I know you, you keep giving me this vibe that you're moving away, but I'm going to make sure that you stay close to me because um, uh, unless I do that, I'm going to lose people. Right. And so these two people fit really well together. And to the avoidant person at first, they're just like, wow, this person who chases me makes me feel alive. This person who chases me actually manages to get past all of my normal uh, walls and they just they just break down those walls. And for the first time in my life, I'm getting my needs met. This person is, I, I feel warm around this person. I feel loved. I feel needed. I feel like this person would never leave me the way that my parents maybe left right. me or, or abandoned me emotionally. And this person is 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 definitely into me and will never leave me. Boy, this feels good. And the avoidant person, allow they get to stay avoidant by continuing to distance, but they also get the benefit of the closeness. Um, now, if taken down certain dysfunctional roads, uh, the, both people end up being dissatisfied because the, the chaser is always like, okay, I've chased you for years and years and years. Right. At some point, you have to let me catch you, <laughs> or at some point, you have to stop uh, you know, escaping me. You have to stop distancing yourself from me because it's so laborious to constantly chase you all the time. Right. And to the avoidant person, it's like, um, I'm glad that you're chasing me, but at some point you have to just like be okay with the fact and trust that I love you without a constant need and anger at me when I'm just sort of hanging out. Yeah. And that's the rub, and that's when the conflict, it's, it's attractive in the beginning, but uh, very aggravating later on. And so maybe that's what happened between these two people is that the Anthony Hopkins character had this, you know, geof geophysical force. It was mm. his logical sort of engineering way of describing this intense need to be with someone. And for her, uh, uh, she her final act of avoidance and distance was to have this affair, which isn't a functional act. She could have right. divorced him. I mean, uh, but to the avoidant person, it might be hard for them to do that. Um, so maybe that's the, the, the backstory to these two characters. Yeah. Uh, we also got the sense that it might not have been her first rodeo either because um, there was that scene where it's like, well, uh, yeah, yeah, because she she was uh, very careful not to use her real name and all these kinds of things. And someone was like, "Oh, it was probably not her first affair." Oh, uh, you know. Uh, so you, this you didn't think that was her matching him? Like my husband, so like obsessive. You know, I have to kind of be the same way. Oh, probably. Yeah, I just um, and it, we have no way of knowing. I just got the sense yeah. like this probably had been going on for a long time, either with that dude or with someone else or whatever. Like right. I didn't get so the when sense, yeah. so when she's actually shot um, and um, Kirk, this is uh, I guess a direct question for you because I mean I I understand that it's a very different scenario being a hostage negotiator with a potential victim inside the house, which of course happens because they don't know that she's already um, well, I guess comatose on the floor with a bullet in her head. Um, but uh, there, I would say that there's like a similar goal to therapy in the sense that you're trying to invade people's heads to... <laughs> right <laughs> just joking <laughs> um like you're, you're trying to navigate hazards whilst like keeping your your patient safe um hopefully reaching some goals i was wondering if you had a critique of the hostage negotiator <laughs> what did you how'd you think he did 
Well, obviously, it's normal for a human being to freak out when he finds out that his loved one has been shot all of a sudden. So his his technique after that point goes becomes, out the window. Yeah. But prior to that, um, if I remember, I mean, obviously, I don't know much about hostage negotiation uh, technique or or sort of protocol. But I mean, from what I've seen in the movies, he seemed <laughs> like he was doing a pretty, pretty good job. He was trying to make the. Uh, the perpetrator, the the suspect, or the the dangerous person feel comfortable. He was putting his gun down. He was using a soft voice. He didn't have a uniform on, because um, that's always a thing. Like for someone who's in a situation like that, if you provoke them and scare them, then they will act impulsively and they'll start shooting. Right. Um, it's actually one of the arguments that people will make for police forces not necessarily walking around with sidearms. You know, in other yeah. countries, uh, police officers don't have guns. They, right. they, they, they're, they're law enforcement officers, but they don't, they can't shoot you. They're just a regular human. And uh, hypotheses and some data shows that, um, you know, uh, perpetrators or people that are in a tough spot will tend to not react as violently to being confronted by police officers, whereas when you got your gun drawn they you know they're they're someone's you know two people are coming at you with with guns it just you just kind of go into fight or flight yeah. and some people fight in that situation and uh people get shot and people die what i don't know and i certainly just don't know the techniques or whatever but it seemed to me really fishy that first of all i i, I ha- found it hard to believe that the uh negotiator can just walk up go inside put their gun down yeah like that whole thing seemed like really, and not only put their gun down, but like basically he didn't leave it outside where it was in in sight by all the other cops and stuff. He like left it inside by the. So that whole thing seemed awfully convenient slash unrealistic. But then again, I don't know. Maybe, maybe yeah, that's our standard he, procedure. Yeah, I'm going to take a guess and say that standard police procedure is for the negotiator not to enter the house right. un- unarmed, especially without having any idea like what they're dealing with. I mean, the, the yeah. person could have been uh, delusional and, and might, right. might have, I mean, just for self-preservation, right. you wouldn't necessarily and do can't that. you just become another hostage at that point? Right. <laughs> yeah, you're just, yeah. What do you think about that, Colin? Well, I, uh, to me, that was something that uh, I felt the writing, you know, like sometimes when you're watching a movie, you, you feel the plot working yeah. itself out. And it, it exactly, I, I'm with Umberto on this one. It, it, it felt like this is what had to happen for the rest of the right. story to play out. So I'm wondering, um, I'm just wondering if there was another way they could have gotten around it. I guess that means more dialogue, a longer scene. And I know that in a movie, it can't exactly be real life because you have a certain amount of time. It has to flow at a certain pace and plot points and all that. But yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I I didn't necessarily believe that it would have been that easy to get. I mean, I understand. I mean, in retrospect, uh, you know, Crawford was playing him and he wanted to put his gun down, but wouldn't that have been weird to the policeman? Like, why was it so easy for me to get this guy to disarm? And, and that wasn't addressed. So I was like, "Mm, okay. Right. And, and then also, uh, just because he's a negotiator, he's a trained police officer. 
And as soon as he saw his the person on the floor with blood and he started recognizing, I, I would have thought that he would have reached back for his gun. But again, you know, you could write it off as, well, yeah, but he wasn't expecting to see. His brain was in shock because of who it was. But uh, fine, 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 fine. Um, I guess not very smart or something or not very able to use his smarts in the moment because he also would have been able to realize who this other person was. And it would have been a pretty short movie if he just shot Anthony Hopkins. I would have loved it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I guess uh, an interesting question, Colin, like how would they have written it? One way you could have done it, uh, which I guess would have been hard, would be like the negotiator is walking up to the house and he starts to wonder, wait, is this the house of the woman I love? Right. But he doesn't know for sure. And so he breaks his normal protocol. Right. Like the, the other police officers are like, don't go in there unarmed. And he's just like, no, no, no. This is, you know, he right. makes up some excuse, right. be, but he can't really say why because he doesn't want to reveal he's having an affair. Yeah. And he, he like enters the house unarmed because he's willing to take that risk because he's like 50% sure yeah. that this is her house. That, I, I like it already. <laughs> Fracture two. Fracture uh, two. <laughs> Same plot. It just you just fix that one little point. More I'd love f- to see the style, like the the style of fracture, um, with these like moody silvers and goals applied to Seattle. You know, because it's got like your your beautiful area is just so like dreamlike already. And I don't know. While I was watching this movie, there I feel like they were trying to create that uh, atmosphere with the cinematography and the, and the orchestra, which, uh, actually I was wondering since, um, I know you guys are both very musically inclined. Um, did you think that this movie was overscored a bit? Yeah, it it had. So the director, I looked him up. He, he does a lot of TV police, uh, procedurals. Wasn't he the gone girl director? He might've been. Yeah. Uh, Okay. No, no. Gone girl was Fitcher. Fitcher. Yeah. Yeah, This guy is Gregory Hoblet. Okay, then not Gone Girl, but there was another one that... Yeah, one of those other movies. Oh, no, no, I know oh, what it was. Primal, Primal Fear. Fear. Primal Fear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Primal Fear. And so the... And it's, you know, it was made 12 years ago, so a little bit of timeliness or sort of of that time. But the music at times was fine, but most of the music I just thought was awful. And, it, and a lot of, uh, you know, productions do this where it's that... Um, when it's it's if i played the tune for you you would immediately recognize the type of song and what it is i can describe it is you have a repetitive sort of eighth note um thing where it's going and then you have like you know and it's sort of it's that amorphous uh background music that uh sounds it's sort of like it goes it's trying to build tension yeah and and it never has a beginning or an end it doesn't have a melody but it's just that it it gives it gives the impression of like typing keyboards people working people thinking tension worry danger and they played that that song a lot like a lot and i just kept thinking like and and it what it reminded me i can't remember the the movie it that I was thinking of, but there's, I can't remember the movie, but it was a movie that was kind of like this, where you want attention. And instead of that music, they played like old school scores with like orchestras, mm. like with actual tunes. Yeah. And it was very noticeable. It was like, whoa, like that song 
it sounds like a score you would have in the 40s or right. something. And I remember thinking, I really like that mood so much better. Uh, or just don't have music, you know, just just let the scene kind of because the, the, the score made me think of a chintzy TV show. Yeah. It, it, so I was going to say that it had beyond the music, it had a, a, a enclosed feeling for me. And, you know, sometimes you want that. In fact, maybe they did it on purpose. But, but the, the sense I got is like the story felt smaller than it, than it should have felt because I kind of felt claustrophobic. Like we're just seeing these dark scenes and, and it's all, you know, there were a few scenes of him driving around, but mostly it's like, uh, oh, they, they also do that thing where, you know, have they have to li- light up from the bottom when they're having intense conversations. Right, right. So the faces yeah. are not too dark. But you get that effect of like, is, are all our meetings late at night? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> with, a, with a light that's bouncing <laughs> off a table. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, But again, that's sort of the time. I mean, yeah. Scorsese does that. Sure. Uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino does that. But the net result for me, maybe that plus the music, was that the story actually felt more, felt smaller than they, than it could have felt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so overall, I, I liked this movie. Uh, I in the beginning, I was like, "Oh, where's this going?" But for the, so for, I would say for the first seventy five percent, I was actually um, quite compelled to know what was going to happen. It mm-hmm. it sort of kept me wondering, like, "Wait, where is this going?" And and the way they l- sort of slowly laid out Anthony Hopkins' plan and how he was going to get away with it uh, was an interesting mystery to unfold. Um, and so normally when I watch movies like this, I watch them in pieces. Like yeah. I'll when I'm eating or when I'm just like, okay, I have 20 minutes, I'm just going to chill. I'll watch 20 minutes of that movie I'm watching on Netflix. Well, with this one, when I got to a certain point, I was just like, I can't put this down. I, I want to see where this is headed. Um, but the last 25%, um, I, I didn't like it uh, very much, uh, and I have a lot of problems, but, um, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought overall of the movie. I think it should have ended a few scenes before it did. And I think that it, going back, if you just like shut the movie off, when he, he says something about winding a clock, he being Anthony Hopkins uh, Crawford, um, and, uh, like, he says it to Ryan Gosling on his way out of the courtroom after uh, he decides not to call his secretary to uh, bring in the false evidence, and he loses. And to me, I I felt like that would have been a better ending, a more mm-hmm. daring ending to wow. have it be that the villain actually <laughs> wins. And as opposed to this, like stuff with the switcheroo with the gun like yeah. if you if you write a good enough story the the mystery is is enough you don't have to wrap it up that's but. a real i didn't expect you to go there and not because i didn't expect you to have a creative answer i just that's super bold that would have been yeah i mean they sort of did that i mean they did like a 10 percent version of that in that they ended just as the second trial was beginning, and, and we have sure, no idea. We don't know. And now he's got a huge team of lawyers, right? Yeah. Uh, I will yeah. say this. So I, first of all, I commend you on your boldness. That's crazy. Um, second. So, Colin, you must really like endings of movies that other people hate. <laughs> I do. Actually, you referenced Gone Girl, and um, I guess, I mean, are we spoiling that? I mean, however, that, however that movie ends, a lot of people were furious. Yeah. I love that. I actually loved it. <laughs> so. I loved it, too. 
How about the ending of Sopranos? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that, too. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, great. We're on the same page. Fade to black. Here's what I was going to say. For uh, On the one hand, I knew right away about the gun. Like it was it, like they made it a little too transparent for me, like because they really, yeah, I, knew I had right away. no idea. Did you know, Colin? No. Well, I, I knew right away because they made such a big deal. Not only in the moment, like I'd say in the moment, I certainly suspected some funny business because it's like they made him put the gun down, and uh, and then we don't see him, but then we uh. see Anthony Hopkins with the gun. But and, and also the other reason I suspected is because of they had shown us the scenes of him moving the bullets around and putting other bullets down and all that stuff. And so I was like, wait, what's going on? And that made me think, oh, I see. He's going to try to do some. And then since they had shown him going to the place, I was just like, okay, well, he switched the guns. That's what's going on. Um, I was okay with that. I was just a little sad that I I was like, okay, I think that's what they're going to do. But the thing that really bugged me was that for someone so meticulous and so smart, Really, he fell for the good old, uh, oh, it's a different trial. Oh, damn it. I thought I couldn't be tried twice for this. Oh, but now it's, how, how would he, he would have had to know that. He would have, not only did he know the law, because clearly he brings it up himself. He's like, oh, well, double jeopardy, old chum. I can't be tried <laughs> again for, but, but, but then how would he not know that double jeopardy applies to the same charges? It was just, that was silly because it wasn't a mistake he could have realistically made. And if his whole plan revolved on that, he also had a lot of time to think through the ramifications of him pulling the plug. So I didn't buy that at all. Um, I would have much preferred something where he does pull the plug and like that's the end. So even, you know, like that dark kind of ending. Now, I I don't think that would have made any friends, but... Uh, or the other approach would have been find a, a more subtle twist in that case. Like it's not that he didn't realize that double jeopardy only applies to the same exact charges. Find something a little more subtle. What I don't know. I'd have to think about it. But that one by itself was not good. Uh, and they the needed other- to cut out that scene of them with the phones because it just made it too like. Oh like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just made it a little trite. His discovery. Yeah. Like, did we need to see the phone switch but- for him to? For when he says that line at the house, like, oh, I noticed something. You know, he could have just said that and then explained. We didn't we didn't need that. No, dude, absolutely. In fact, they had the perfect scene when um, when the guy, the cop, the negotiator opens his glove compartment and we see the gun. You could have had the brilliant Ryan Gosling kind of remember, like, see the gun and then later be like, wait a minute. And then he rifles through the evidence. He's like, what the what? You know, instead it was like. Oh, cell phone switching. <laughs> the guns could have been switched. Very heavy-handed. I agree. Uh, what about you, Colin? What do you think of the movie overall? Overall, I I think the thing that I walk away with um, are the performances, which I, I understand is is um, not uber different or you know interesting. But I just loved the pairing of Anthony Hopkins and Ryan Gosling because it 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 didn't read as something that was put on a paper, you know, like sometimes you watch movies and you, you, you can feel the producers like putting their hands into the bucket and being like, okay, Mm. you need to use these people. Like we got to get them together. I don't know why my producer has an evil voice, but, um, (laughs) but it just, but they, it felt like they were picked because they could develop 
a, a really interesting chemistry based on their unique acting styles. You know, Ryan Gosling's doing this like loose yet confident thing that's like maybe not Brando, but it's it's in that like department. And then Anthony Hopkins is like using his like years in theater and like, you know, cause he's a like legitimate stage actor for sure. And he's like being very specific with the script. You know, I, I think I read somewhere that he reads his scripts like a hundred times before he even goes to the first table read. Um, don't quote me on that. I could just be jargon, but, um, but yeah, so I, I found that their interplay like kept me engaged throughout the movie and Ryan Gosling is somebody that I find myself defending in yeah. in terms of his performances because, like, for example, he was recently in Blade Runner 2049, right. and I thought his performance was terrific. The friend I saw it with said he didn't do anything. They, mm. he, they walked away going, oh, well, you know, he... He was just the, he had just the same face over and over mm-hmm. again in every seat. And have you seen Drive? He did the same thing there. But well, that's because like, he's a replicant. Crazy, because he was so great in Drive. So I, I don't know, but but yeah, I think that was um, I think that's really what sold it for me. So uh, I have to confess, a, a lot of things about this movie bothered me. Um, one was actually that. Ryan Gosling was at this point in his career still kind of acting. And mm-hmm. and although I, I liked Drive, I thought it was fine. I didn't love it as much as the internet loved it. Um I loved Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade uh, Runner was great. I, I mean I real and I, I And he I, did a good job in it. Yeah, I mean yeah. uh Denny Villeneuve and Oh, Ryan, he's so good. Yeah, and right I mean just the it was just so good. I just love that movie and and uh, Ryan Gosling was the perfect character for that in the same way that Keanu Reeves is the perfect character for Matrix. Um, are these um, actors in their certain point of their career uh, varied in their sort of way of acting? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but they fit perfectly into that character. And so, uh, But I am getting a little tired of Ryan Gosling either choosing roles or sort of forcing his very, very deadpan way of, of acting into every role that he takes and because when i see movies like when he was like i think he was just 20 years old and he was a movie about neo-nazis um and he was a very young actor at this point oh and he was really acting like he was really going for it he had a he had a lot of emotions you know very expressive and in this movie fracture it's sort of like that transition where there he's expressing himself uh still yeah and he's not as dead as he is now but uh, he he's still kind of going in that direction. So um, now uh, again, I I don't f- I wouldn't want him to be acting a lot in Blade Runner. But I just love to see Ryan Gosling take a role that just has just him being able to really express himself. Like when I see things like um, uh, Al Pacino, for example, right. you know he was so wonderful in Godfather. He had intense moments he had uh quiet moments you know in his early days al pacino had this varied uh, you know sort of presentation um then he gets the scent of a woman and beyond and it's always this always over the top and he's always got to be yeah. screaming you know and it, yeah. and it, it just becomes this trope and it's like dude it's like a cartoon of him can't you just try a different mode and i feel like some actors they get into this sort of thing where that's what they like and it's a, it's a similar criticism to Anthony Hopkins of like he's basically playing Hannibal Lecter 
And I know he's a very accomplished actor, and I, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. And I, I, I haven't obviously seen everything that that he's in because he's in a lot of things. Like he was in Howard's End, right, and and was a very soft character in in that movie, right? Um, yeah. Uh, was it Howard's End? Well, I mean, he's been I, in I the Remains so. of the Day, which he was um, amazing. I've actually, I've actually, that's one of his that I I haven't seen. Um, a similar performance uh, sounds like from what you're saying would be him in The Human Stain. He he plays an older man who um, who sleeps with, and this was years ago. So um, he has an affair with Nicole Kidman, who of course is much younger. Um, anyway, it's a that's a very fascinating film that uh, you see a different sensitive side to Anthony Hopkins for sure. Yeah, yeah and and so in this movie, um, I mean, I guess I hated his character because I think we're supposed to hate his character, but I also just felt like the the main moments of his acting, it was like. I was like, I felt like I couldn't get over the fact that it was so similar to Hannibal in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. And I don't think it's actually his fault other than choosing the role because um, the script was going after that. That's like, well, we want basically a Hannibal Lecter guy right here. Uh, imagine if the script had had this situation where because he's so meticulous, because he's so precise in his line of work and stuff like that, He's got all these other little flaws. So they try, they almost tried, you know, because if you remember in the courtroom scene, they, they tried to make him like, well, I don't know what the term is, but what do you call it when he's fucking your wife or whatever, right? <laughs> but, but then the sense you get later certainly is uh, I, that was all planned anyways. Like he's got every little action planned. I would have much rather seen him be a flawed individual. And sure, he can... Uh, he can meticulously make these little things and stuff like that, and he thinks he can meticulously plan this murder, but he gets in his own way in other ways, and he's awkward in the court, and he's doing this and that, and no, he's not like this total mastermind over everything, anticipating every single move at all times, right? And then I would have actually believed the twist a lot better. Mm. I'm like, oh, of course, because he, he's so... He gets in his own way. Also, it would have been great to get a little bit more of his perspective, like almost make me empathize a little bit more with him. Because oh, there was, was a moment. I don't know if you, if you thought this where they, I felt like they could have gone there. They could have made much more about that egg farm. You know, there's that, there's that yeah. line of, I loved the way that um, it was written where he talks about finding cracks in the shell when he works um, at a bakery. And uh, there, I wondered if there was some, like if there was a way, and again, I, I don't like when um, abuse is used as a trope or just like, let's throw it in there um, haphazardly. But if it was written a, in a great way, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be abuse, but we could see like something that formed in him yeah. through an experience while he was working on that farm. Absolutely. That's a great idea. And also it could have been that maybe through his conversations with the lawyer, imagine if the conversations with the lawyer had been a lot less about him going, hello, old chap, wink, wink, and the lawyer being like, what? Why are you so happy? I'm so confused here. You know, imagine if less of that, it would have been him going like, well, how would you feel if after 10 years of such and such, one day you realize, you know, like kind of yeah. get his side of the story where the lawyer or the prosecutor almost starts being like, oh man, that is a tough situation. Like make me, you know, the best villains really do this, right? Like, you don't ultimately empathize, you don't ultimately agree with their worldview, but you empathize with their condition and you 
almost they almost pull you along their narrative and you of course decide no well he still went too far uh they didn't do that at all here it's basically like this unlikable guy unlikably kills his likable wife and unlikably tries to frame or basically get away with it scot-free and unlikably seems to have a vendetta against this prosecutor who's just trying to go live his life doing something else And, and that really bugged me the wrong way i actually unlike oh sorry go ahead no, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to finish with, unlike Kirk, there there were some things about, well, maybe I'm not unlike Kirk. Just there were some things about Ryan Gosling's underperformance that I felt worked well with Anthony Hopkins' overperformance and that it created a, a, like a ni- nice, interesting dynamic. I also did like Rosamund Pike's uh, acting and whatnot. It's just that I felt her character was confusing because we had like this relationship uh, developing and then he goes meets her parents and but then, like, the last part of it, they flipped our character to this, like, oh, I only care about business, so bye. It's like, wait, oh, what? Oh, I totally, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, it's, I I really love her. Um, I, I've been a fan of hers since, I want to say it was her first movie, where she, hmm. she played the Bond girl in Die Another Day. And, like, oh. I mean, I'm a Bond fan, but that's not one of the better ones. I mean, I well, think most I didn't people remember. Know- <laughs> wait, is that Pierce that? Brosnan? Yeah, that was the last Brosnan before we then, I think maybe four or five years down the road, got Craig. So, oh. yeah, but uh, but I, I think that she does a great job, but there are two characters to her character. I, I felt like there was something in conflict, like they wanted the cold, manipulative, mm. you know, uh, career-driven corporate type. And then mm. they also wanted her to be girlfriend, you know, like that, yeah. that tropey like kind of perfect <laughs> girlfriend character that um, is, you know, really upset when he lies to her, you know, that, that rang kind of false. I'm like, Oh God, I can see her reading this, you know, scene at Thanksgiving with her family and being like, why is my character who is a lawyer and lies all the time? Why would she, why is she so mad that he lied? And why yeah. is she so surprised that he lied? Right. Well, and, and she's his boss, right? Did I miss that? She's his boss. Yeah, I was confused, too, because when they first met, I thought they didn't know each other Right. when we first see them together, but they were already in a relationship with, the, with each other? No. Oh. No, you were, you were no, they anti-confused. Met at the opera. Oh, so they did meet there. Yeah. Uh, did we not see how they developed a relationship? We didn't really. Like, yeah, suddenly, the, yeah, suddenly they're totally... in bed together. Well, because in movies, when you make little twinkly eyes at each other, you're in a relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the biggest problem I had with this movie, I didn't notice upon as I was watching it. Like like I said, it, about the middle portion, I was pretty compelled. I was There was a part of me where I was like, this movie's totally unrealistic. I'm sure lawyers watching this would be like, that's ridiculous. That would, <laughs> that would never happen. But, you know, like Gone Girl, th- there's, right. a, there's some ridiculous aspects to that movie. But I was still... I was like, okay, we're kind of in a dream world. Yeah, I'll go along with this story. This is this, you know, it's interesting. I want to know what happens. Right. And uh, but then after the movie ended, and as the sort of, I started getting a little annoyed at the end. I started thinking about it, and I was like, wait a second. So, Anthony Hopkins' plan. We're supposed to believe that his character is super genius, right? And and he had figured it all out, and he had you know pre-planned everything. His plan was ridiculously risky. Okay, how did he know that his wife never told the cop about him? Right. How did he know that? 
How did he know that she didn't tell him that day? I mean, he wasn't, he right. didn't bug, you know, how does he even know that to begin with? Right. So he has to know for sure that the, that the negotiator does not know where she lives, who, you know, and who her husband is and doesn't have any clue, like doesn't know that at all. He has to know that there's only one hostage negotiator in all of Los Angeles. Uh, (laughs) He has to know that he's going to be the one to show up and that he's not busy doing something else. Um, How did he know that the camera at the hotel wasn't good enough to see him? Because, you know, he wears that hat to to disguise himself. But how does he know that the I mean, he didn't hide his face. How does he know that there isn't another camera that did see his face? Um, how did he know that no one saw him at the hotel when he went and replaced the gum, that the gun, um, or at least his extremely recognizable car? <laughs> yeah, like his car, like the fact that how does he know that that his car, which is very recognizable, there's probably one of those in L.A. Right. It, yeah, how does he know his car didn't get picked up uh, or at least identified by a hotel worker? Plus, it's an extremely loud car, has a very yeah. distinctive loud noise. How did he know that he'd get access to the cop's gun when the cop arrived to negotiate? How did he know right. that the cop wouldn't see the switch? You right. know what I mean? Like, he, he, you know, somehow got the cop to drop his gun. How did he know that he was going to get away with that? Right. Because, so let's say that, you know, he does all this stuff and, and then he shoots his, his wife. The cop negotiator shows up and he's like, okay, gun's down. And the cop's like, no, sorry, it's protocol that I don't drop my gun. Right. And then the guy's like, and then Anthony Hopkins is going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'm caught. Like, yeah. I, I guess I'm going to jail oh, for this one. SOL. Yeah. Uh, whoa, that meticulous plan didn't work out. How did he know that the cop would be alone when he got his confession? Because, um, you know, there could have been other cops who could have heard that and could have right. been even in the room. How did he know that the confession would absolutely be thrown out? Because, right. you know, I, I could imagine other cases where it wouldn't have been thrown out. How did he know that the cop wouldn't figure out that the gun was switched? Like, that's, you know, eventually yeah. someone did figure that out. Yeah. So it, it obviously wasn't that hard to figure out. Well, and that the, that the cop would uh, walk, walk out with the gun. Like, because you could have thought as soon as the shots go, or as soon as, like, they start fighting and everyone rushes in, wouldn't the cops be like, oh, shit, there's a gun on the floor. Let me pick that up as evidence. And, right. You know, like, there's so many things. That, um, the other thing that came to mind is when he... Why did why was it even a hostage negotiation? Like who was informed of that? Because all he did was he shot a gun, so that the the lawn tenders ran away, and they must have been the one that called the cops. Right? We never got a sense of how did this turn into? How did the cops know? Like oh, oh, oh we got a hostage situation here. Yeah. Because for well, all they the, told the they told the cops that the wife had come home. Right. So they. So I guess they. But you're right. They made. But the I mean, wouldn't they? Wouldn't a, right. Wouldn't the more logical assumption be like, oh my god, some intruders shooting the homeowners from this house that we've known for a while? Why right. would they know? Oh, hey, the owner is taking his wife hostage. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really notice any of these things as I was sure, watching sure, it. Sure. But looking back, uh, uh, it's just, uh, you, you know, you, you watch a horror movie. And in reverse, you, right. you always do this. Like, so wait a second. Mike Myers put a head into <laughs> the refrigerator uh, and waited in the kitchen for someone to open the door and be afraid. And then he was going to kill the person. Like, Mike Myers has this, like, really weird fetish about, like, wanting to scare you before he kills you or something. Um, well, we're like, I was watching a horrible, a horrible as in terrible uh, terrible as in really poor quality 
horror movie yesterday, and it was uh, they have this scene. What's it called? Uh, it's thirty one. It's a Rob Zombie movie, but it's sadly one of his worst. Um, they have this scene where this gal walks in through a uh, swiveling door, and as she walks through, all of a sudden the door shuts, and you're like, oh god! And then as she turns around to look. The bad guy shows up in in front of the camera behind her. But well, then who shut the door? Did he have a little string attached from the other side of the room? Because there was nothing supernatural in this movie. It's like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then the last thing that I thought was uh, not terrible but bothersome was Ryan Gosling's terrible accent. Oh, he had an accent. Oh yeah. What was that accent? I think it was supposed to be southern. Oh, I think okay. he. I think it was supposed to be like from from Savannah or oh, something. Okay. okay, I have a question about this. So, did you, <laughs> this is probably just me being dumb, but I thought he was making that as doing that as a choice. Like this guy doesn't want to sound like he's from there, so he's concealing. Did I did I overly analyze that? <laughs> who, who knows? I mean, that could be right. You might I'll, be giving them more benefit. Than <laughs> yeah, I, I think they wanted Ryan Gosling's character to be from the south not from that area like he he didn't really fit in yeah. he wasn't like an la native look I, so but, the, but his accent was so bad yeah and all, all i could think of was like why not just make his accent his regular voice like right. there, there was nothing about the plot no nothing in that, fact i didn't even catch on but so here, here's the thing i actually really enjoyed uh primal fear and there's bugs in that movie but i really enjoyed uh primal fear with with um richard gear and uh, Edward Norton is great. I really enjoyed The Fallen with um, what's his name, uh, Denzel, Denzel, and uh, I don't remember if there's other famous people in that. But it's really good movie too, as far as I was concerned. And again, there's little bugs in it and whatnot. This one had some promise, like the premise is interesting in a way. Like, oh hey, what if you had this very very accomplished, very meticulous person, and he tried to get away with the perfect murder? That sounds interesting. And then you have this prosecutor trying to get out of the, the public service into the private sector, but he's pulled by the challenge of taking down this madman. I like it. I like the premise. It just could have been so much better, and I think it would have required a better script ultimately because I don't think it's, it's so much the – even Ryan Gosling, I think it would have been fine. I think the script needed, needed to be better. Yeah, he, he directed Hill Street Blues back in the day. Oh, I loved Hill Street Blues. 40, 45 episodes he, he directed. So that was <laughs> like his it. main thing. He directed 35 episodes of L.A. Law, Ooh. Uh, which I think is I like present Law. in that. He directed NYPD Blue. Ooh, I like the NYPD Blue. Uh, he did Primal Fear. He did Fallen. Right. Uh, he did Frequency, which I don't know if you uh, remember that. Okay. Yeah, I remember. Uh, he, did, he directed Fracture. Uh, and he also directed one episode of The Americans, which is one of my favorite shows. So the guy's done a, gr- a, gr- a great amount of work. So this might be a, maybe not one of his best, but but it had promise. Yeah. What do you think overall? Like, uh, Colin, out of 10, what do you think? I would give it a if a, an objective six. Okay. okay. What do you think, Berto? Um, I'll go five, maybe. Yeah, I gave it a four, and uh, which isn't terrible. You yeah. know, it's like two stars out of five, yeah. kind of, meaning that it it's 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 uh, it's watchable. 
And if you're into procedurals and Anthony Hopkins, particularly, um, I would recommend. Uh, particularly in the middle, I, like I said, I was pretty compelled by the mystery. Yeah. And uh, but yes, there. Like I, the complaints I had about it were, um, and there were there are also some cheesy moments where I just felt like the writers like you said Colin you could just sort of detect the writing like okay yeah. we need Ryan Gosling to have kind of a breakdown emotionally at this 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 yeah, is yeah. the end of the movie ish we need him to break down emotionally so we're going to have him do this scene yeah. and this will be the moment where he's at his rock bottom right and yeah. it just it just felt like oh okay i i see the writing behind the movie yeah and there were inklings i think of better movie opportunities there um I mean, you you create the script, so I mean, largely you you have to shoot what's there. But um, but really, I felt like he had more. I guess you could say romantic chemistry with the lady who played the secretary. And I yeah. was thinking that 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 might have been um, a little clearer, a little easier, because it would have given. Um, depending on how they played it, it could have. Uh, added a layer to that character like oh this is you know a boss a person in a position of power who's sleeping with his secretary um you know what are the implications there is she is it a positive or a negative thing um i think that they could have um i think they really wanted him to be likable so in some ways i feel like he should have been less likable because I, i don't know if you've ever felt this but sometimes when i'm watching tom cruise movies from a certain time period you can feel like the things that he might have said, or at least I, I get this feeling that he said, oh, we should have, let me do this, or let you know a character react to me in this way because ultimately people are coming to see Tom Cruise and they want me to be, you know, charming actor man. So I don't know. I think that, you know, taking some of the polish off of Beecham would have been beneficial. I, You know, it's, it's funny though. I, I see your point and I agree with it, but I ironically... I've always felt that Tom Cruise, either through the scripts or himself, they actually try to go through pains to add wrinkles to his perfection. And what I'm thinking of is, for example, an equivalent movie, The Firm. Um, you know, they make a point of make him, making him overly nervous and uh, sort of uh, overly uh, eager to impress early on at the firm and all these things. They, they, you know, and he has no problem looking all disheveled and sweaty, running around, and you can never blame him for underacting. Like, you know, he, he eats his scenes up. So, and when he does, though, a lot of times it's, it's a little chaotic and it's a little uh, fragile, if you will. But so... I think actually that's what's missing in, in a lot of Ryan Gosling's performances is that he's too cool for school, man. Like you just it's like, wow, I mean you are a cool cat and I'd love to hang out with you, but where's the where's the risk? Where's the you know, and in this movie you're you're right that it was like the the most they did is like, Oh, he's a little too cocksure about leaving the the public sector. Oh, it's going to bite him in the ass. But that was spelled out too much. And that was, in general, a complaint I had is they spelled too many things too too, uh, too much. For example, when he was reading the definition of uh, double jeopardy. It's like no lawyer at that point in his career has to go and read the definition of double jeopardy. Um, yeah. Anyways, stuff like that. Yeah, Zoe Kazan was his secretary. And I'm looking at her filmography here and this was one of her very first performances oh uh she would later uh just the next year 
she was Leonardo DiCaprio's secretary in Revolutionary Road. Oh, I love that movie. And did have an affair with him in yeah. that movie. So she must have been wondering, like, wait, am, am I, like, typecast as, <laughs> as, a, as a cute, very um, a subservient, yeah. uh, uh, you know. But So she first had Ryan Gosling, and then she had Leo DiCaprio. Right. Uh, she wrote Ruby Sparks, and was a, she was a star in that with her husband, Paul Dano. Oh, uh, and she's been in a lot of things uh, since the then. Big sick. Yeah, big sick. Oh. Um, she uh, plays the writer. She plays uh, uh, what's his face's um, wife who gets sick. Um, but most recently, you might remember from the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. She's in. Oh. I think. I think the last story in which she is the the hapless traveler West. And did you see it? I have not seen it yet. You haven't seen The Ballad of Buster No. Oh, we should do a podcast about that. Maybe I'll watch it. Maybe, uh, Colin, you could join on that, It's a whole bunch of different stories? Yeah, it's short stories. Um, I would love to talk with that about about that. We'll talk with that. uh, There are some of the short stories in this, you know, uh, Coen Brothers production are some of the most poetic, wonderful productions Mm. I've ever seen. Um, and then there are other ones where I was like, okay, that was interesting, but <laughs> I don't know if I need to see that again. Okay. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll maybe, watch it. Yeah. And, and I really love the one that she's in. It's one of the longer ones. Okay. Um, oh, anyway. yeah. uh, okay. Colin final word on fracture the movie. I would say watch it on a rainy day. If you're bored and you've got somebody special to you, um, and, and, uh, I think wine would go really great. Wait, with I it. thought you were going to say <laughs> someone special to you that you want to shoot in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody you're looking to off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I, I feel similar. You know, I don't regret having watched it, actually. There's some movies I'll watch, and they're so bad that I want my time back. I'm okay that I watched it. I probably won't watch it again. I, I won't watch it again. But Well, I can't describe it. Okay, so my... I don't think that this movie holds up to much um, intellectual scrutiny, but there's a sort of feeling I get. Like, I don't know if you guys ever feel this way about certain things that you watch that it's not necessarily that you're captivated by the story or any anything tangible that you might write in a review, but you just feel the movie. Oh, and yeah. the feeling of the movie is great when you when you let it go. Um, when the credits roll. And I, and I think I got that from this. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it at the, up until, you know, minute a hundred, you know, or a minute, uh, what was it? 70. I felt that way. Exactly. I, I, I remember even distinctly thinking if I start thinking about this movie, I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I completely. So, so not only do I understand your point about this movie, but the general point, like, look, I have, movies that I would never be able to defend from a logical or even great movie quality standpoint or whatever, but that absolutely make me feel a certain specific great way and I watch them over and over. In fact, oftentimes those movies I watch way more frequently than truly great movies that I've, uh, you know, I've got some examples like I have this thing that I like saw the series and the hostile <laughs> movies and look those are like atrocious there's no logic it's there's really bad writing it's terrible right but i love it i just 
get this feeling. And I'm not saying this movie is like that level. I'm just saying I can I can empathize. <laughs> yeah, I get that way with um, the the director of the Mummy films, and he mm. also directed Van Helsing. Like mm. they don't make any sense, but <laughs> you just I just kind of watch them and like I'm like, oh, look at the look at the monsters and the, yeah. the corny makeup and <laughs> I don't know it just brings me joy even though they're they're garbage <laughs> so. uh, that's a great thing to say Colin I completely agree with you uh, I don't know if I've ever either been able to admit that publicly <laughs> or uh, been able to put it into such words I, th- I think there's just certain things that you just say because I'm this way I it's like okay uh, if I can if I can get into this movie, I'm going to purposely get into it because uh, I'm, I'm here to stay and I'm going to watch this thing and I might as well enjoy it, which means I might have to turn off parts of my sort of scrutinizing brain because uh, I want to enjoy my life and, and I'm going to enjoy these 90 minutes. Right. And for people when they're just like, you know, how could you possibly enjoy that? It had this detail. It's like, okay, you know, I, I guess if I really <laughs> focused on that, but for me, I wanted to enjoy it in the moment. Yep. Yeah. Did you have any fan casts of this movie? Like, if you were to if you were to cast it today, who would you put in the roles? Oh. Oh, like <laughs> if you were going to redo it. If if you were to, I mean, you don't have to do all the characters, but um, but my uh, there was I had an instinct about Willie. Um, I I really wanted the Black Power Ranger. Okay, and let me clarify. So from the new Power Rangers movie, which is another guilty pleasure the one who plays the Black Ranger. He's an Asian actor, um, Ludi Lin. I was thinking because he has, he's got this like off the wall energy. He also played uh, He's in The Descendants. Huh? He's he's in the the Disney Descendants movies. And also in one of Kirk's favorite films, Aquaman, he plays a fish. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like that movie, Colin? (laughs) I, I did. Oh, it's God. Good. It's really I, uh, not good. <laughs> Have you I, seen it yet, I, Well, you tried to show it to me. We watched like 10 minutes of it, and then I stopped. Yeah. I haven't it's seen it. It's a CGI explosion for yeah. over 90 minutes. That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Some might call it a CGI snot rocket. So, so <laughs> casting-wise, uh, I guess for Ryan Gosling, I would cast the kid from uh, Baby Driver. Baby Driver. Oh, okay. Is it Baby Driver? Ansel Elgort. Yeah, Yeah, he's great. I would cast him. And then for Anthony Hopkins' character, I would cast Anthony Hopkins. (laughs) But I'd I'd tell him, like, be less perfect. (laughs) Uh, 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 What's his face? Underwood. Oh, yeah, sure. Frank Underwood. Yeah. Frank Underwear. Um, If we did a gender bend, I'd love to see Tony Collette. I mean, I know that that's, you know. That's a whole oh, different yeah. story, but I, I've always wanted to see her play because yeah. she's played like in uh, Hereditary. Um, yeah, you, you question her. You I know, could they're, they're, see you're that. not totally comfortable with her, but I've never seen her play a villain like this. And I'm like, damn, she would rock it. What about Mandy Moore as the villain? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Colin, and for uh, getting us to watch this movie and talk about it. It's been interesting. I hope people enjoyed it. And listeners out there, please take care of yourself and maybe send in movies for uh, us, us to talk about. We're going to turn into a review, a movie review show. <laughs> uh, and take care of yourself. Colin, why should people take care of themselves? They deserve it. But that's my line. Oops. <laughs> 